Hello and welcome to Writing on the Walls. I'm your host, Rob Lavati. I'm very excited today to be joined by Parker Knudsen. Parker is a survivor of multiple suicide losses, that is having lost several people in his life to suicide. This episode definitely hit close to home for me, as Parker's first loss to suicide was his father as well. On this episode, Parker and I talk about what it was like losing his dad to suicide when he was only 14 years old, how he has had to teach himself to be a man without his father, some of the unhelpful messaging that we are given as young men, and then he also talks about what it's been like to have also lost seven of his friends to suicide, and how he dealt with feelings of guilt around the suicides in his life. Slight disclaimer that I was battling a bit of a cold when we recorded this episode, so if I sound like a nasally mess, that is why. And with that, let's get into it. I've recently gone through the process of switching therapists, so I know how hard it can be to find someone who's a good fit. It feels like most of the time I've either gotten put on a wait list or have gotten no response at all. With our sponsor, BetterHelp, you can tap into a network of over 25,000 licensed and experienced therapists who can help with a wide range of issues. Once you get matched with a therapist through BetterHelp, You can talk to them however you feel comfortable via text, chat, phone, or video call. To get started, visit betterhelp.com slash W-O-T-W for writing on the walls. That's betterhelp.com backslash W-O-T-W to get 10% off your first month of therapy. Thank you to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode today. Parker, how are you? I'm good, man. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for joining me today. Absolutely. It's an honor. And thank you for being you and doing this project and um, respect and admire this this mission you're on. And I hope mm. this conversation can, can help someone in the future. I know it's going to help me. I, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to join me. Um, like like we talked about in some of our communication leading up to this, um, your loss in having lost your father uh, feels pretty close to home for me. Um, so I'm looking forward to connecting with you on that. And I know it's going to be helpful for me and anyone who's able to listen. Before we dive too deep in, there is a question I like to kind of kick off the conversation. Sure. And I'm hoping you could share with me what it is that you learned that you feel is most important, either from your dad while he was here or from his loss to suicide? Yeah, so that's such a good question. I've been thinking about this for a couple of days and I don't have an exact answer or what is most important. I would say um, while he was here, I learned love from him. Mm. And then while he's been gone, I needed I've found out that love and more love could even be the answer. And a part of that too, um, what's really been an eye-opening experience for me is, you know, just facing your fears and everyone's going to have struggles and everyone's going to have battles, but what we choose to do with those fears is going to be detrimental. 
and how just the general aspect on life and the the frame of mind of how we go about our day. Um, I heard there's a statistic out there, and you don't quote me, but the human brain thinks like tens of thousands of questions and thoughts a day. And depending how many of those thoughts are either positive or negative can totally, you know, have a huge and direct influence on your life. So it took a long time to be able to find the positivity, but I think positivity, love, self-affirmation and gratitude is what's helped me through, through the majority of it. That's, that's a great answer. And, and if on a good day, your brain is thinking 10,000 thoughts and questions um, after enduring a, a suicide of a close, uh, close loved one, it's 10,000 a minute. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we, Absolutely. You, like we talked about leading up to this, and I'm looking forward to maybe pulling on this in a little bit, the, the what ifs, if you will, that mm-hmm. come up around suicide specifically. Mm-hmm. Those are some of the most unique and challenging questions that I've had to face in my journey. And I'm curious to hear um, what some of those were like for you. But first, I do want to give you an opportunity to maybe share a little bit more of your story for those who are listening. Um, Your story is unique in that you've endured um, a tremendous amount of loss to suicide in your life. It started with losing your dad. Uh, when you were only 14 years old. And if I understand correctly, since then, you've lost six or seven uh, friends or uh, friends of friends to suicide. So a lot of folks in your network um, seem to have struggled with ideation and made the choice to complete suicide. Um, So understanding that, I'm hoping you could share with me what that was like the first time in losing your dad and then kind of take us through your journey, um, how, how you've lost these other folks along the way sure. and how that's been core to your story. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, just a little background of, of me. Um, I grew up in Denver, Colorado in the suburbs and um, my parents got divorced, I think when I was 12, maybe 13. And then of course I lost my father at 14. So it wasn't a ton of time in between that divorce and um, him actually committing suicide that that had happened. Um, you know, I think there's still a lot of a grievance with him and our family with the divorce. And then leading up to the, the suicide, um, you know, being a, a preteen, just hitting puberty, going through middle school as an eighth grade, mm-hmm. you know, some of the more important things in my life at that time was like, Oh, do these girls think I'm fat in class, you know, right, opposed right. to like this huge, huge life changing event that would eventually take place. Um, and so of course that was my first experience. And then just a couple years there afterwards, actually one of my best friends um, lost his father his father went missing for a couple of days and someone ended up finally finding him. And hmm. um, I helped him with the grieving process as much as I could, but of course everyone reacts differently. And um, I'll say, unfortunately, you know, with him, he just kind of ended up cutting a lot of people out of his life through his grieving process. And I do not blame him for that because that was the way his body 
and mind reacted. Mm. Um, but it's probably similar situations with some of my friends and stuff afterwards as well. I think my first one of my friends happened when I was a freshman in college. Um, it was actually him and one of his other friends who tried to do it together, but then one of them lived, which oh, was man. really, really interesting. Mm. Um, and then throughout college, 2009 to now i've lost another six people what's really fascinating about that is out of everyone there's only been one female that mm. have actually committed suicide in my social network um the rest have been males and adults all over the age of 18 mm. yeah i appreciate you sharing that and that's one of the big questions that I'm looking to get some answers for. Um, unfortunately, I don't think there's a single answer, but like we talked about leading up to the show is the demographic that's being most affected by suicide seems to be shifting in time. Traditionally, it was men over the age of 65 or 70, um, which while still maybe puzzling, I can wrap my head around. Sure. A man being later in life, maybe being without his partner, maybe mm -hmm. facing health challenges, being retired. There are a lot of risk factors that I can understand. Um, I see that. But that number seems to be dropping lower and lower. And um, I'm not sure how, how old your father was when he completed suicide, but my dad was 54 going on 55. Yeah, he was in his 40s. Yeah, 49, and I believe. And that seems to be the window right now that's being most affected is men between the ages of about 40 and 55 or 60. Um, and then the, the second uh, highest window being men between the ages of 20 and 35. Um, so while this is certainly not an issue that is unique to men, it does seem to affect us with, um, with more likelihood. Um, and it's more likely that men are to use lethal means when attempting suicide. So, I, I mean, that definitely makes sense as you share your story that uh, most of what you've experienced have been men who have made the choice to take their lives. To, to backtrack a little, I'm interested in learning more about your dad. Um, yeah. If, if you could share a little bit with me what, about what your dad was like and yeah, what your totally. relationship was like with him leading up, uh, leading up to the event. Great, great. So a little backstory of my dad, of course, I'm speaking all from memory. So I've actually now I've lived the majority of my life without him at this point. It's been 18 years. Um, I'm 32. And so um, it's, it might be a little bit more foggy than it, it once was. However, um, I know that he grew up in eastern Colorado in a tiny, tiny town. It was him and two brothers, his sister. There were six people in his graduating class. They were ranchers. They were hard. They were cowboys um, and very, very strong people. However, um, I'm sure there was some kind of <laughs> challenges growing up in that type of environment. Sure. And, you know, my grandma has depression too. And so I do think it's a little bit genetic in my family, but I think that isolation and being in the farm and stuff in his, you know, early years, you know, might've played a part in that. However, you know, once I was born and I started to 
you know, get to know him and have memories with him. I, I never saw any weakness. I never saw my dad cry. I never saw my dad um, complain or say work was too hard. I think it was definitely something that was, you know, inbred into him or um, taught to him that, you know, this is the way of being a man and you just suck it up and you do it. Um, however, that philosophy didn't end up happening for, you know, his entire life, but um, he's a great father. He was really involved with my sports. He was a, a Cub Scout leader. Um, even with the divorce, I saw him every day, pretty much. I'd go and spend uh, weekends at his house. Being the dad, he was kind of like, I don't know, the cooler one in a way in which you can like talk to him about certain things you wouldn't necessarily talk to your mom about especially as a preteen and asking questions about, you know, women and um, culture and rock and music and drugs and everything that you start to learn about at that age. Um, but he was really good, but I never saw those signs of weaknesses, weakness, and it really caught our family off guard. And we knew that, you know, he probably wasn't doing well after being divorced um, however, one of those biggest factors of the divorce is because he was really bad at communication with my mom. And with that, probably talking about his feelings. And I think that, especially with the statistic with men, I think a lot of us have that. We don't want to be vulnerable. We don't want to show any weakness. I don't think it's a good thing. I think it's somewhat toxic. Um, however, those things need to change. And I'm hoping, you know, by you and me doing this today, we're, we're kind of igniting that fire. Um, so mm -hmm. I hope I answered your question. There was a lot there. No, you, you definitely did. And I think it's, it's a good time to plug. There is a fantastic podcast that I listened to um, that I think would be really helpful for any men uh, and women as well, but especially for men who are listening to this show that relate to what Parker just shared about what it means to be a man, some of the messaging that we were given growing up, some of the stoicism we watched our fathers uh, project that maybe was not always the most helpful at times. The podcast is called Man Talks. Uh, awesome. The host's name is Connor Beaton, um, and he Sweet. is doing a tremendous service for men's mental health and men's issues in general. Um, he has a lot of experts on the show that specialize in understanding men's issues. And I, I view him at the forefront of, uh, I, I could only hope to be a fraction of the impact that Connor has had. Um, but he really touches on a lot of this that we're talking about. Um, and that's what I'm hoping to get into a little bit on this episode with you is what we learned, that. what we learned about being men from our dads and how that shifted um, and how we've had to teach ourselves to be men without them and how it may look different than what they taught us. So tell me, a little, tell me a little bit about that. So I'm picturing you being 14, losing your dad and facing the immediate uh, cluster of feelings that come up immediately after that. And now for more than half your life, you haven't had that father figure um, what, what have you carried with you that your dad has taught you about being a man? What have you had to teach yourself 
And have there been any other important father figures in your life since losing your dad? Yeah, amazing question. So, you know, being 14, the toughest, strongest, smartest, best dude in my life gave up. And it wasn't something he ever taught me before was to give up. Mm -hmm. And that was really hard to wrap my hand around because, you know, he could fix anything. Um, he could build anything, you know, he was the strongest dude I knew. So losing that, I was like, man, if the strongest dude I know can't go through life, then how the hell am I supposed to, right? I'm just a kid. Um, I'm definitely not as strong as him. In fact, my dad's told me that I'm not as strong as him in the past when I've pissed mm. him off or, you know, mm. done something stupid. Um, but yeah, I was lost there for a while, man. And um, I'll say most of the manly figures too, especially at that age, you know, they feel bad for you. They understand you're having hardships. They might've even had hardships on their own. So they like to give you a little bit of wisdom or guidance. However, no one's going to come and say, I'll be your new dad. Right. And so, um, I, I kind of just started learning and, um, watching men and seeing how they reacted and, um, you know, took, some of the things I thought I liked in guys I did like and try to throw away some of the things I didn't like in other men. But it was, it was a constant thing because, you know, as 14, if you're the man in high school, you know, you're like a ladies man, you're not necessarily like, or you're the coolest or like you're the strongest or the hippest or whatever. And then once you go into college, it's a little bit like that, but then you start to like acquire some skills or, um, you know, some qualities that you might have not had when you were younger. Um, and so I took men from my workplaces, uh, teachers, friends, fathers, all these different things. I couldn't fully, you know, connect with them father to son unless they kind of volunteered for that. And there wasn't a lot of that, unfortunately. Um, and so reading and just inner self-exploration and who I want to be was kind of the biggest drivers of, you know, becoming a man. But just the simple philosophical questions like, what is a man? Like, what does it take to be a man what makes a better man than the other what's a stronger man versus a weak man i'm still learning these things to be honest um mm. i i but i do believe to be a man you need love you need to ex experience love you need to feel love and so being a man is giving back really and giving back that love and showing the the next generation or the younger guys what it takes and hopefully to do it better than what we had mm. um in my late that. yeah in my later years um i got married a year ago and i've been dating my wife for about seven and i've i've really grown into kind of that first fatherly role 
I've had since losing my dad with hers. And he's mm-hmm. been so, so helpful and so cool. And he's taught me a few things, um, you know, building some stuff or some car mechanical things, or um, we go, we went and saw the Georgia Tennessee football game not too long ago together. And that was cool. like a really cool bonding experience. Um, but yeah, I've, I've seen a lot of men I don't want to be like, and I've read and seen a few men that I do. And it's, it's in my best intention, my philosophy that you need to surround yourself with people that you want to be like. Absolutely. That, that was a great answer. And there was a lot there. It definitely brought up a lot for me. You, you talked about what it means to be the, the cool kid or the cool one growing up. And out of the things you listed, I did not hear um, being the sensitive or vulnerable one. That is not cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. And that was me to a T, very sensitive from the time I was a, a young boy. I still am a, a sensitive man. Um, I view it as a superpower. If it's something that I can harness, sometimes it takes control of me. I think I'm a very emotional person. Um, and I, I'm hoping that we can continue to normalize that because that is a huge part of the problem is this idea that we cannot be vulnerable, that we cannot share our experience amongst other men. Um, something Connor talked about on Man Talks uh, with a guest, his name's escaping me, but he talked about the idea of honor being almost unique to men. Um, that's something that we really want crave and need is this validation and approval specifically from another man. So while we all have this need, it's not something we're taught to seek or know how to ask for. Um, so that's that's the first thing that came to mind while you were sharing. And the second thing, you, you used a phrase that I've thought about a lot um, in losing my dad, which is the idea that he gave up. Um, mm-hmm. Because when I lost my dad, my immediate response was, here's the man that's taught me how to do everything that I know how to do. And he just taught me that I can press the big red button or hit the eject button whenever I want. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, that stuck with me for the first couple of years. Um, and I think I've turned the corner on that. And there's a metaphor that came to mind while you were sharing I think I used to look at my dad taking his life as folding the cards at the poker table. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, he didn't like the hand he had and he folded. Um, I think the way I look at it today is he ran out of chips, you know? That's Um, a really great way to put it. um, And that, that helps me have compassion for him in a way that viewing it as he gave up, I wasn't quite able to tap into. And I didn't have that same philosophy at first either. I'd say, you know, I definitely heroicized him and he was like a victim of society. And I was mad at the world for, you know, them doing this to my dad and mad at the banks for, you know, not giving him more of a break on debt or money or, you know, a bunch of different things. And there's a tons and tons of feelings that come up and they're 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 cyclical and like you said you know i think it's a, a really beautiful metaphor of the folding versus the chips and 
it took me to get into my adult life to like fully kind of understand exactly what he was giving up and the decision to do that. Um, and yeah, I, it's, it's hard, man. It's hard. Yeah, it, it definitely is. Um, and I don't know that it gets easier per se with time. I think it just gets different. And as my perspective continues to grow, it enables me to approach the situation from more of a compassionate standpoint uh, than, than a place of victimhood, which is, I think, kind of the natural response to losing someone to suicide because we are victims in a way. Um, there, you know, we, we talked a little bit about this leading up to the episode. I do want to give a plug for a phrase that I just learned last week um, in meeting with Dr. Jen Howell. She talked about what it was like losing her mom to suicide when she was 13 years old and being a motherless daughter. Mm -hmm. And that definitely got my gears turning a little bit because I've never looked at myself as a fatherless son. Um, and I guess, I guess we both are in a sense. And the thing about suicide is around one person making the choice to take their own life life is an entire network of people that are affect, affected in a unique way. Mm -hmm. um, and I've shared this on other episodes. I probably sound like a broken record. Um, I know what it's like to be a 25, 26 year old man and lose my dad to suicide. So uh, be an adult and lose my dad. I don't, I don't know that I understand what your experience was like being a boy, being a teenager, losing your dad and having to kind of pick up the pieces and fully understand what was going on. What I'm hoping you could share with me is what your immediate reaction was in terms of the feelings that came up for you around losing your dad as much as you feel comfortable going into and how that's evolved for you over time. Yeah, absolutely. So like I said, it was all cyclical. Um, and being that age, I didn't even understand it fully to under, you know, to, to tell you the truth, like, it was even hard to convince myself when I woke up in the morning that my dad wasn't there. Um, mm. But um, yeah, a ton and tons of feelings. Okay. So um, when I first out found the news, um, I guess I'll back up. So I was supposed to spend new year's Eve with my father on the 31st and we were going to celebrate the new year together. However, I had police come knock on the door on the 30th at 8 AM and I was the one that answered the door and they asked for me to go fetch my mom. And um, I was like, what the hell is going on? But anyway, they took her out back. Me and my sister sat on the couch like, you know, what's going on? Did someone die? Like, is mom in trouble? Like, did I, you know, who, who knows what happened? Anyway, they came back, shared the news and I'd say shock was the first reaction I had. And it lasted for a couple of weeks. Like I just like my brain couldn't wrap around what had happened. It like tried to convince itself that this was make believe or a dream or like I'd mentioned to you, like my, my father was murdered. Like this must have been wrong. Like my dad would not do this. Um, like, have you fingerprinted the car? you know like right. it's like what the hell happened um and 
it wasn't until I saw him at the viewing that I actually had my first tears. And again, he was just, he was my hero. He was, I like, he was my angel. I heroicized him. Um, I was pissed off or pissed off at the world at first and not him. And he was a victim and, you know, he had lost his job. He'd gone through a divorce. He'd racked up some debt. And while those were all things that happened to him, I was mad at the banks and I was mad at the employer and I was mad at Denver and um, the society that made him do these things. My mom reacted a little bit differently. She kind of started that anger, that anger feeling a little bit earlier than us. And, you know, she tried to tell us, you know, how she was angry without upsetting us because we're like, why are you angry? Dad, you know, had this happen to him and, you know, he's a victim and why, why are you mad? It wasn't until a few years later that I started to get that anger and I realized like all the things I'm missing out in life and all these experiences I should have shared with him that he chose not to share with me. And I know that he loves me at the bottom of his heart. And maybe if it hadn't fully executed, he probably would have regretted it. However, those feelings are cyclical and there was heroicizing, there was shock, there was grief, there was anger, there was guilt. There was a lot of guilt on me. Like, what if I had been a better son? What if I had asked if I asked him how he was doing better? What if I started fundraising to help him get out of debt? What if this, that, and the other thing? Um, you know, there's also a secret to share that I haven't shared with anyone before you, um, but I'd written a letter, a letter to my dad a, a week before, and I was really mad and we'd gotten a fight. And of course I was hor hormonal and, you know, fighting about the stupidest things. I don't even remember what the fight was about, but anyway, and instead of fully telling him how I felt, I decided to write it down on paper and shoved it into a drawer and I never gave it to him. Well, after I found out the news, I went to see if that letter had still been there and it wasn't. And so there's a lot of guilt. Like I killed my dad. It was me that killed my dad. And I know that's not true now, but at the time being is like, man, if, if only I'd only not written that letter, maybe he would have been here. Um, but yeah, the what ifs are just so heavy and they'll pick at you and your brain can try to convince itself so many times, but those what ifs won't matter. And actually, if you dwell on the past and those what ifs, it can be very, very toxic and dark for you. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's, uh, yeah. Thank you for, for sharing that with me. I really do appreciate that. Um, really brave for you to speak up and share something that has probably been really painful for you over the years. Um, and I appreciate you sharing that feeling of guilt. I think that's a pretty common feeling that comes up around suicide. For me, it was, why didn't I pay more attention to my dad struggling? Why didn't I go to an AA meeting with him? 
Um, why didn't I tell him I was proud of him for trying to be sober? Mm-hmm. Um, why was I so wrapped up in my own depression that I couldn't see his? I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Yeah. And it's, and it's natural and it's, it's a human element. And it's just like your brain just trying to wrap itself around these things that you'll never fully understand. And we're all individual human beings and we can try to understand someone else's life, but we're always going to be looking at it from the outside and exactly. we'll be able to, to see through their lenses. Absolutely. And, and I appreciate the way you talk about the emotions that came up as being cyclical. Um, and that really kind of helps connect the way I've been trying to look up or look at the way my grief has gone. Um, they talk about the stages of grief, which were never meant to be associated with the grief of losing a loved one. Mm-hmm. Um, but they often are. Um, I tend to look at it more as a circle, which is what I'm hearing you say. And it's a circle of emotions that come up because at any given day, you can loop around that circle 15 times. Um, And it could be guilt, anger, denial, fear, jealousy. I mean, there are just some weird emotions that come up around suicide that I think are unique to that type of loss. Um, And you talked about some of the denial piece around losing your dad. This has to be a mistake. This can't be real. He must have been murdered. man, that really kind of cut me to the core because for the first two months after losing my dad, not only was I uh, suspicious that there had been foul play, I was convinced my dad was murdered. That's why the police wouldn't let me go in and see him at the scene of where it happened. Um, That's why when they gave us his cell phone back after the investigation, it was completely wiped. I mean, there was some weird stuff that happened, mm-hmm. um, but it's kind of a stretch to take that and say, like, my dad must have been murdered. And I the, know. Thing, the thing is, um, it sounds crazy now. It sounds crazy for me to think about that's where my mind went and I was so convinced. But maybe the craziest uh, possibility of them all is the truth um, that our dads made the choice to take their own lives. Um, that is a tough pill to swallow. And it's, that is maybe the hardest thing to wrap your head around. It's the hardest. I mean, I could probably, at least at that point in time, you know, be convinced that aliens, you know, killed my dad. For real. Opposed yep. to him taking his own life. Yep. Um, and yeah, it's, it's just such a un- just such a thing my dad would never do and I knew my dad but my dad knew someone else and knew him for someone else and we all have that and um you know to go back on the cyclical thing people ask me all the time two different questions and I like to bring them up for one do you think it'd be harder if you just never knew your dad opposed to this happening and I I have a lot of friends that never knew their fathers and I totally feel their grief and their sense of mystery in the world and their what ifs. Um, however, I think just having that, sh- that shatter was just such a shocking experience. I feel like that was worse, but of course that's something I experienced and I don't know the other one. 
The other question is, if you saw your dad today, what would you do? And I tell people I'd probably go up there and punch him in the face and then give him the biggest kiss and hug of my life. Um, yeah. But a, a feeling I didn't get to talk about, and it's something that's very important, is the forgiveness. And, you know, it took me a long time to fully forgive. And, you know, I still don't fully, fully forgive because it's just so, so such a hard thing that I've had to deal with for my life. But in my brain, I've let some tension and some stress go and say, you know, dad, I forgive you. And after that, it really helped with healing. Absolutely. And I think I would do the same thing if I saw my dad. I don't know if it'd be a punch in the face, maybe a drop kick or like a swing <laughs> elbow. Um, but yeah, that definitely relate to that. And I, I, I like the way that you put that in terms of the forgiveness. That's something that I think is a lifelong journey. And I, I view for myself, the predecessor to forgiveness is understanding. And I wonder if do you do you find yourself there at least in having an understanding of why your dad saw that as a viable option? Well, you know, what's really interesting is after this happened to me, my fear of death went out the window. You know, um, I my sense of coping and stuff was through adrenaline and adventures and substance abuse and seeking thrills and feeling alive and mm. like feeling everything I could possibly feel in life, especially if it was exciting. Um, I'm sorry. What was the question? I kind of got off topic there. No, no, that, that was all good. Um, it's just, it's funny. It struck me while you were sharing this feeling of feeling alive it's funny that when we think about feeling that, what we're really feeling is risking death. <laughs> and yes, that's what we no, call yeah. feeling alive. So yeah, death. Um, so yeah, I, so with all those things, I was like, you know, I'm not scared of dying doing these things. I'm going to, you know, live a little bit recklessly, especially in my youth. And if I die this way, at least it wasn't by suicide. You know, at mm. least it was doing something I loved. It was doing something that, I enjoyed and um you know my family made a pack a pact together that we we'd never do that um and I fully believe it and you know especially with me becoming a father here in the future it's even more important and I want to be the best dad ever and I want to be there and it, I think part of my journey has just been in some type of weird enjoyment of pain um, just like absorbing the pain and feeling it and its rawness and then trying to use it as a power and it's hard, but the metaphor I like to give is like a lobster in a way. And I've, I've heard this from a couple people, but basically for a lobster in order to grow, it's in its shell and it can only expand so much because that shell is there to keep it from growing. And it's just going to live its day, its uh, life being stressed until it can break out of that shell and grow a new one. But in order to do that, it needs to break out and be vulnerable and not have this protection around it 
for a few days or however long it takes a lobster to grow its shell for that new shell to harden in the bigger new improved lobster and so all these things that happened to me in my life I like to see these negative things as blessings and no I do not consider this suicide as a blessing however it has shaped me to the person that I am today and I fully believe I'd someone completely different if this hadn't happened to me um i i joke about being like a brat or you know just like i don't know someone that didn't care as much and now i'm just like a full-blown empathetic i'm like you i'm emotional i'm a cancer i i feel all these energies and i have to give back somehow um but I still don't fear death and I don't want to fear death and I don't want to live my life thinking about death. And I face it all the time, day to day, thinking about my father. However, there's just so many things in this world that I want to do that I have to keep persevering and we're just, we're our own people. And we have to, you're not your father and I'm not my father and we need to live our lives to the fullest. Mm. That's something my mom said to me after losing my dad that really pissed me off at the time. And now I appreciate so much. So succinct. She just said, you're not your father. And I'm like, in my head, I'm like, well, I want to (laughs) be, yes, I am, you know, like, uh, First and foremost, though, I want to thank you for giving me the title to this episode, which is going to be We're All Just Lobsters. Um, (laughs) I think we're similar to lobsters in a lot of ways. Like, I probably taste better with butter and garlic. Um, (laughs) I don't want to be thrown in a pot of boiling water. Um, (laughs) I've never heard that metaphor. I appreciate that. You shared about some of the coping mechanisms that you indulged in after losing your dad, whether it was Mm. that chasing that adrenaline rush, the feeling of being alive, substance abuse, you know, the whole spectrum of things. I feel like someday I could write a book uh, called What Not to Do When You Lose Someone to Suicide. That's so funny because that's the title of my book. No way. All right. Well, I mean, really? I, 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 guess, we're, I, I mean, guess we're I guess we're collabing seriously, on that. Seriously, my whole life, I, I, I was like, man, I've experienced so many things, but there's a lot of lessons to learn what not to do than what to do and yeah i'd say it wasn't a healthy way to go but i was 14 and you know weed and stuff was just starting to come up and i knew a couple like pot smokers but didn't really fully associate with them those filthy pot smokers those filthy pot (laughs) smokers you know we were at the skate park and we saw it going on but we're like we don't really want to be like those guys Anyway, once that happened, I was like, damn, maybe this can make me feel funny or feel good or, you know, let me escape reality a little bit. And it did. And pretty much thereafter, I was just looking to get stoned all all day, every day. Um, You know, it kind of goes back to that that frozenness and that cruise control and that numbness and 
amplified on being stoned just 24 hours a day and then drinking alcohol um, mostly through high school and then you know getting into later high school college is when I started experimenting with other things luckily I had enough self-control to not get into something super super scary or bad but anything that made my brain feel good I was willing to take it and I had a great time um, I'll say that's not the best way to cope um, I, that is not advice for anyone that is dealing with this. Um, the more organic, better solutions for me, I've always been, I think you'd probably be similar to you, but like, I have like this inner orchestra in my life that just like everything could be, um, creative or displayed in a song or some type of art. Um, creative expression is a huge way that's got me through this music, just the power of music, any mood I'm in, I can choose a different genre or song or something to help me feel better. Um, being with my friends, I went to college in Durango, Colorado, and I really loved being in the mountains and doing the outdoor activities and snowboarding and rafting. And, um, Durango's a beautiful think, place, by the way. Really have love you Durango. Been? Oh, yeah, that's I have. awesome. Yep. That's awesome. Yeah, it's a little gem of a town. Um, yeah, Fort Leisure College and had a great time. I'll say, you know, I still partied. Um, there were points where I was partying too much, and that definitely contributed to worse depression and serotonin being depleted. And my first year of college was actually in Grand Junction, Colorado. Um, I went to the wall, man, and I just was partying hard every night. I decided to stop going to classes. Um, I started just sleeping a lot, um, getting real depressed. Um, I remember there was a lot of guilt because I came home for Christmas that year and I hadn't shown my mom my grades and she got me a, a nice bike to start to commute to class and stuff. And I had all Fs in one A. And the A was in sculptures because I could go there high as a kite and do all the creative outlets that I like <laughs> to do. That sounds like it was probably fun as hell. <laughs> it was. It was awesome. But um, it was a it was a lesson learned, man. And everything's a balance. And you know, I think marijuana and stuff can be used medicinally but the way that i was using it was not a healthy way and that's sure. just being stoned 24 24 7 yeah i yep copy paste here um my my journey with substances started before losing my dad but um after losing my dad that's when i became a real escape artist um mm -hmm. i i feel like i treated my body and my brain like a science fair project. And I knew the the right balance of chemicals to mix to, if not make me feel better, make me feel different. And that's mm -hmm. all I wanted to feel was different. I would have done anything that would have gotten me there. If you would have told me that eating like a pound and a half of salami would have made me feel different, <laughs> I probably would have tried it. There totally. was, um, and you know, that unfortunately, was the case for me until the wheels came falling off with substances, with alcohol, with, with cannabis, with other substances. It took things getting to almost the point of no return for me to be able to dig myself out of there. And it took, uh, it took 
treatment for me. I had to go to rehab. It's taken um, having a recovery program in my life now to kind of help keep me on the straight and narrow. Um, and if you're comfortable sharing, I'm curious how that has shifted for you from being Absolutely. in a place of being a young man struggling with substances to now being, you know, we're about the same age, being a, a man in your 30s. What role substances have in your life? Yeah, well, um, so actually, I definitely dabbled with cocaine a little bit in college. Um, I actually did a study abroad in Colombia. And no, oh that's not the that's not the reason I went there. However, um, it was very easily accessible and cheap. And it took one time um, just laying in bed, just like hearing my heart pounding. And like I could feel my heart pounding in all the different areas of my body. And I was like, holy shit, do I go wake up my Colombian parents to take me to the hospital right now? Like, holy shit, mm -hmm. like, what the fuck is going on? Um, ended up being fine, but that was like a huge realization, like being on the verge of, you know, possibly a heart attack or an overdose or something. Um, a lot of the substances I like to use were hallucinogens. Mm -hmm. um, I like to seek like inner philosophical life questions, internal questions. Um, and so with the hallucinogens, they're not really addictive. I mean, I know people that have done too many of them, but however, usually one big trip got me being like, damn, I don't need to do that for a while. You know, yeah. um, I'll say, man, I, I wouldn't consider myself like a full-blown alcoholic, but maybe that's just denial. I definitely like drank heavily, binged every weekend. There were times in my life where I was drinking like a couple beers a day. However, I never felt the need to have to go to the liquor store like when it opened. Luckily, the weed, I just like it got in the way of me wanting to do some of the things I wanted to do in life. I love the feeling of, you know, being high, but I got lazy and there's just so much I want to do in life that I realized, you know, at least only do this when you're going to bed or something like that. And then I got a job that, that drug tested <laughs> and that pretty <laughs> much made the decision for me. Yeah. That's an easy way to decide that. And there's a lot of people I know that wouldn't take jobs that drug tested, but I was sick of working all these odd jobs and not getting any farther in life. And I decided, you know, maybe it's time to, to put down the doobie and mm. try to keep going. Um, yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I, I realized that there's still a lot of ground that I'd like to cover and if, if you're okay with it, what I'd like to propose is maybe doing a part two where we meet again. I love um, that. I really want to spend some time talking about, I, I think we really have covered what it's been like losing your dad. And there are still a few questions that I have around that. Um, I'm really curious about what these other losses have been like for you. And mm -hmm. I feel like we could spend another hour talking about that, talking about Absolutely. how each of those losses has been unique, what you've learned from them. And what I'm really curious about is how they have shaped your worldview, losing so many people close to you to suicide. 
Um, is that something that sounds good? Would you be up for that? I would love that. And to end um, with that note, you know, I'm not a normal person in this world in that type of sense. You know, it, what's it's really unfortunate that like suicide is a huge reality for me. You know, this is really touched me in, you know, one father and seven friends that have done this. And I'm probably like a radical example. However, I think with more and more, you know, social media and getting away from being humans and stuff, this could potentially happen more. I hope that we can help it and save it and bring it up, but I would be honored to talk some more about this and I can talk about this for days. So thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to, you know, talk with you and I'd love to talk some more. It's, it's just really awesome. nice. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate you being open to that. Um, if you're cool with it, there are still a few questions that I'd like to sure, jump into if you have time. Yes, sir. Um, something we've talked about on previous episodes and I'm curious how you've approached this is the conversation around losing a parent to suicide. Uh, it can mm -hmm. be really, really awkward when people Definitely. ask you, so like, Oh, are your parents around? And you're like, ah, no, my dad, my dad passed away five years ago. How did he die? And then you always kind of have that jumping off point. It's like, do I do this right now? I know. How, right. do you, how do you approach that when people ask you about, about your dad's death? So um, I'll go about this two ways. For one, um, I'll do it how I did do it and then how I do it now because it's a little bit different. Um, you know, when I was a kid, it was very, very hard to talk about, especially the first couple of years. I couldn't bring it up without, you know, gasping for air or, you know, having my voice mumble or squeak. Um, mm. And as a teenager, I was almost like embarrassed about it a little bit. And especially like with my friends and um, girls and stuff, like I had some friends that were straight edge before I started smoking and, and whatever this happened. And then I started smoking and then, you know, I was kind of considered the, the bad kid in a way, like those friends, parents I used to know were like, Ooh, maybe don't hang out with him as much. Uh, he's, you know, going through a lot. I don't want you to get into it or something. Some girls, you know, I was careful with sharing that vulnerability because I didn't want them not to like me because of that. Of course, now I think that's silly. Um, and I've always been pretty upfront with it. You know, I think there's definitely a time and a place and a comfort of who you want to share your story to. And, you know, there might be some people you don't want to share your vulnerability with. Um, however, when people ask, depending who it is, I usually say, oh, my dad passed away when I was a kid. Um, and then if they ask more, then I tell them the full truth. Um, if it's someone I'm really comfortable with and I just don't mind sharing that side of my story, then I just kind of tell them right off the bat. It's always awkward afterwards to like, oh my God, I'm so sorry for asking you that. And I'm like, there's nothing to be sorry about like it's a simple question you are curious like this happened to me and you know maybe it's good 
that you know someone in your life that's gone through something like this. I don't know. Um, I try to stay positive for for everything, but it's challenging, man. And um, you you got to just do it at your own comfort, really. You know, I think you and me we're making this public information. This is really therapeutic for me, but there's probably a lot of people listening to this that aren't quite ready to share those stories or you know talk about it so yeah. openly. Yeah, that's that's a great point, and I I don't think there is a right way. Um, there is not. I think it takes knowing where you're at in your journey and what you have capacity for. I do, however, think there is an unfortunate um, burden of responsibility that we are given as survivors of suicide loss, which is we now have the 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 rock, if you will. We have the power to help normalize the conversation around this. Because like you said, you know, that response of, I'm, I'm so sorry I asked. People wouldn't say that if you said, oh yeah, my dad had a heart attack or my dad uh, died from cancer or- You're so right. It's yeah. suicide. Suicide is the instance where people feel that- like, just Why did I, I didn't mean to bring yeah. it up. Sorry, like, I'm sorry. Yeah, where it's like for you and I and for others who have gone through it, that's reality. That's what happened. It's not something, at least at this point, I'm ashamed of and I'm happy to share about it. Um, so what I've found is to harness that power that I have, I have to make people uncomfortable, um, mm -hmm. which is no problem for me. It's something I love doing. I'm a sarcastic person. Uh, sometimes in my life, I've used humor as a weapon. Um, so oh, I don't mind, true. I don't mind yeah. making people uncomfortable. Um, but I found that, you know, that's, that's the way over that hurdle, uh, with people in my own life by just sharing with them openly what happened and not shutting the conversation down because it makes them uncomfortable, letting them ask the, the questions that come up, the morbid curiosity for them, giving them the space to ask, letting them ask so how did he do it? Everyone wants to ask that. Everyone wants to ask that. And, and whether everyone... it's appropriate or not, it's not mm -hmm. up to me to decide. Um, I've had the same curiosity about hearing that in other people's lives. Um, so I think that's, you know, part of the power we have is making this normal to talk about, um, despite the discomfort that comes up around it. Absolutely. You know, these... So men's, um, men's mental health, finances, so many taboo things in this world that the solution is to talk to about them in our society, mm. plain and simple. Ignoring things have never worked. Um, and ignoring yourself is also not going to work. So it kind of goes back to that very first question that you asked me and it's facing your fears and I'm not telling you to go and yell it from the top of a mountain or whatever, but find a way that you can say it out loud because you can think it, you can write it, but until you say it out loud, like it's so much different. Absolutely. Yeah. While we've been talking, I've, I've been thinking obviously about my dad a lot and part of my journey in healing through his loss is I felt a calling to do some of the things he wasn't able to do. 
Um, for, first and foremost, stay sober. That's something my dad struggled with for most of his life. Um, that's something that's become a primary mission for me is tackle this in a way that not only was my dad not able to, but his dad and his dad's dad. This is some generational stuff that I have decided the train stops here. Um, so that's kind of first and foremost for me, this like bucket list, if you will. You know, my dad was a, a deeply troubled man, maybe for his whole life with his own mental health. And he never shared about it. He never sought help for it, at least that I know. Um, that's become part of my mission is to be really open about where I'm at. I've sought a lot of help, a lot of professional help for my mental health. Um, mm -hmm. My dad never really got an opportunity to travel. I've decided I'm going to travel for him. I'm going to travel for me. I'm going to experience some of the things that I know he would have loved. Um, you know, my dad, and you've shared this about yours, and I, I do have a curiosity question. Remind me, I want to come back to it, but music was huge for my dad. Some of my earliest memories of my dad and I are me standing on the living room table, shouting the lyrics to Black Sabbath. <laughs> That's five, awesome. Like five years old, <laughs> just like, and him being so amped about it. And that's what my dad taught me above all, man, is the power of music. So that's something I have integrated into my life today, both as a player and a listener, um, being in a band was, now. And Was your dad a musician? Uh, I say yes, he would say no. Um, he played the bass. Him and I would jam together all the time. I play guitar. But he, like with most things in his life, was really hard on himself about his playing and mm -hmm. thought he sucked. But he had fun doing it. He had a blast anytime That's he played. That's what I That's think what matters. Is. Exactly. Exactly. So, so yeah, you know, me being a musician, like I said, I, I just like, I can always um, explain a certain life or moment or life moment with like a song or something. Right. So my dad, so when I first got my first CD, this was 1996, 1997. I was like six or seven years old. Uh, I guess who was popular at the time? It was the Backstreet Boys. Dude, same. And... <laughs> <laughs> but my dad was like, you know, I'll let you like have your fun with music, but I am going to make sure that your first album is, you know, rock and not the Backstreet Boys. So here is Queen's Greatest Hits. And, um, he was a rocker, man. He loved Pink Floyd. Um, he always, he really liked the Talking Heads, uh, Meat Loaf, you know, just kind of your average boomer rocker, I guess. You know, I kind of got him more into like Bob Marley and, you know, there's some harder rock and punk rock and stuff that was coming out when I was a, you know, preteen that he would like. There's definitely a lot of music he that I listened to that he did not like. Um, heavy metal or you know mm -hmm. super gangster rap or whatever yep. um but yeah music i wouldn't say like his life evolved around music but he definitely had a good taste of music i use it and harvest it as a power like if i'm if i need a jump start to my day i play songs in the music you know if i'm feeling down I'll put on some headphones and then like two songs later, I'm dancing in the kitchen and feeling good, you know, like, yeah, 
I just, I just love it. But as far as bucket list items, there is a lot of things that we want to do. So we, he was an adventurer. He was a traveler. He was a skier. He was a fisher. Um, he definitely, you know, got a little bit of that influence on me early on in life. We actually took a road trip like up north, uh, Devil's Tower, Wyoming, South Dakota, oh, cool. so forth. Um, and we actually happened to be in Sturgis during one of the motorcycle rallies. Oh, cool. And uh, we always said, like, you know, once I was old enough, we'd do a Sturgis rally together. Um, he wasn't like a biker, but, you know, thought motorcycles were awesome and cool. It's just probably my mom wasn't going to let him buy one or something. Uh -huh. I don't know. Um, he was also a pilot. He wanted to be a pilot, I guess. I mean, he was that for a while, but then as soon as I came around, um, he had to kind of quit that and started doing a different job in pro property management. I think his heart was like in the air. And I think that a big part of his mental outlet was just flying and seeing the world from below. And so I eventually like to get like a private um, pilot's license, not for a job, but just for me to do that. Um, both those different things. I still have his ashes. I was thinking about spreading like a little here and a little there. Um, he was a traveler. I'm a traveler. I've lived in Colombia. I've lived in Thailand. Um, I lived here. I've traveled to a bunch of countries. Um, and I think, you know, he can kind of see those places I'm traveling to in an, another way. Um, dreams, oh, man, I wanted to touch on dreams a little bit because when it first happened, I just had these craziest fucking dreams ever. Um, one of them that comes into my memory is like, I was going to like visit his apartment, but the apartment was like made of straw and it was damp and it was leaking on the inside. And I walk in and I see his bed and it's just like a pile, like a hundred boxes of macaroni noodles with a blanket on it. And um, I was like, dad, what's up with this? And he's like, oh, don't worry, son. Like with the perfect moisture, this macaroni bed, you know, feels like, a Tempur-Pedic or something like that. And I was like, just like, what the fuck? Like, just like dreams, we never know what they mean or how to interpret them. But for some reason, that one always stuck in my mind. And there's a few others too. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of things I want to do in life. Um, a lot of them are for me, mostly for me. Um, but it would be like an honor to do some of these things that he really enjoyed. You want to hear my philosophical take on your dream? I would love it. I am not a dream expert. I know nothing about this, but it's interesting to me that what you are describing is your dad made his bed and slept, slept in it. And it was made of macaroni noodles and you didn't understand why um, that I can see a lot of similarities to your dad making the choice to take his own life. And you didn't understand why it's, yeah. It's almost as baffling as a bed of macaroni noodles. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> it's, it's a great uh, it's, way to put it. It's amazing how many similarities I, I see between your story with your dad and and mine with mine, my story mm -hmm. with mine. Um, my dad and I, in the last two years of his life, 
he was my riding buddy. We rode motorcycles together all the time. It was my favorite thing to do with him, man. It was just, and I, I have his motorcycle in my garage right now. And I just look back on those days with a lot of fondness. And the last trip we talked about taking together was we were going to go to Yellowstone together. Um, we were planning this in the last few months of his life. And obviously we never got to go together. And just this year, a few months ago, my girlfriend and I got to go to Yellowstone and dude, what a cool feeling, man, to be there and not just like think I feel his presence, but like know that he's there with me was the most amazing thing, man. Um, so I think it's really cool that you're doing these things, not just for your dad, not just for you, but for your continuing relationship with him. Mm -hmm. That's how we continue to honor the people we love that we've lost that are no longer here. We have to keep that relationship alive. And unfortunately, the responsibility for that is on us and us alone. It is. And it's cool in like, you know, places in Mexico and stuff where they have Day of the Dead. And, oh, um, yeah. You know, there's so many countries out there that honor spirits. In Thailand, when I was teaching English out there, they'd always leave jukes boxes and food out near these little symbolic temples for um, their favorite drinks and foods of their past loved ones. And it's mm. so cool. And I mean, really the only thing I can think of is visiting a graveyard here and that's just depressing as hell most of the time, you know? Yeah, it is, um, I mean, it feels good. I love talking to the grave. You know, it's, I, I feel good that I visited. However, it's almost like a constant reminder that they're gone opposed to like celebrating who they were and the life they did live. Yeah. It's, it's interesting you bring that up. And I do think there is a balance to be struck. And I do think that visiting the gravesite can be something that can become unhealthy and obsessive for people. Um, I don't want to air, air them out, but I have a family totally. member. I have a family member who lost their spouse and this was in 2010 and since then they have probably not gone to their gravesite 15 days wow. in 12 years um, and it's become this like clockwork thing and maybe it's really healing for them i'm not sure it could um, be yeah from the outside looking in it makes me sad um, but if it's healing for them, I guess that's all that matters. Uh, Parker, man, this has been an awesome conversation. And, and like I mentioned, I'm looking forward to doing another one with you where we get into some of the other experiences that you have in having lost, uh, a number of friends to suicide. There is one final question I would like to kind of leave the listeners with and leave you with. And I think we've touched on it a little bit. But if there's something we've talked about already that you'd like to expand on more or something we haven't talked about, I'm curious what uh, what is something you would want people to know or remember about your dad? Oh, man, that's a great, great question. Um, you know, so the older I get, even with not having him there, for the past 18 years um i can't help but like see my him in myself and stuff um and a lot of good mostly good 
Um, of course, some negatives, but as long as I'm aware of those negatives and, you know, make those connections and stuff, it's all good. Um, but he's just, and I'm not saying it's the best way cause I do it too, but he just, he put himself second. He put everyone first except for him. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, really nice as a family man, but I find myself, you know, putting work first or putting my friends first or a stranger first and i just have to keep reminding myself that i'm the most important person in this world and i need to do things for me sometimes and saying no um to things is also something i've struggled with in the past and um you know he was an amazing father and I strive to be a father like him, except just run the marathon. And um, I'm looking forward to teaching my future kids the things that he taught me. But with that, I'm going to teach them that it's okay to be vulnerable as a human. And like, just because you're a man doesn't mean that you're a hunk of metal you know Mm. like we're all humans um we can be strong and be vulnerable at the same time it's not a black or white thing Mm. and the more truthful we can be with ourselves and our friends and our community the better it will be for society and culture and hopefully you know take this epidemic away eventually Mm. um you know everyone has their own reasons it can be financial it could be ptsd it could be addiction it can be a broken heart but everything's temporary and everyone needs to persevere and by doing that and seeking the proper assistance if you're struggling with doing that yourself that's the best thing that you can possibly do. Um, my dad would say, live life to the fullest. Do things that you love and family first. And I believe in all those things, um, plus a little bit more on the family first. That's that's a fantastic answer. And it sounds to me like you're absolutely honoring your dad and living your life to the fullest um, I think you're honoring the life he lived. And by coming here and, and sharing with me today, I think you're honoring the pain he endured um, in making the final choice that he made. Um, I think it was really brave for you to come on here today and, and share about your dad. Um, I know you helped me, and I believe that anyone who has the opportunity to listen to this episode is going to be helped as well. Um, and your your dad's name, Edward Lee Knudsen, is that right? Knudsen, actually, it's a Danish. Knudsen, we, we, we pronounce that K in Danish. It's really weird when you're, you know, an English speaker, but yeah. Uh-huh. Knudsen, Edward Lee Knudsen. Thank you. And yeah, I'm, I know he was uh, honored for us to be talking about this today, and as was my dad. And I really appreciate you taking the time to join me and looking forward to chatting again soon. Rob, absolutely, man. And um, I, I know we're, we live pretty close to each other. So I'd love to just um, get together sometime and shoot 
the breeze. I'd like to ask you some questions and kind of be sure. the interviewer as well. Um, yeah. Cause I've, this has been very therapeutic, very helpful for me. I don't have a ton of people. I have shared these similarities with me. So again, I just think it's such a cool, beautiful, amazing thing that you're doing. And um, I hope this conversation helps people. Um, again, like you said, I only know this as a um, boy who lost his father. I don't always know what it's like for a brother or a sister or a kid or a grandparent. But um, hearing all your stories and episodes before this has been really, really relieving to hear. And um, you might have sparked, you know, kind of an interest in in me doing some some work in my life, doing uh, involved around this as well. So mm. thank you for inspiring. Keep inspiring. Keep being you. And I'm looking forward to talking next. Thank you, Parker. That that really means a lot to me, man. That's all I could hope from from sharing this is if it could be an inspiration to even one person. I feel like I can check off the box of having done what I said. Well, you to nailed do. it, man. All right, Parker. I will catch you soon, man. Thanks again. And looking forward to chatting next time. Appreciate you, Rob. Thank you.